Can you think of times in your life when being forgiven by someone has mattered to you? It's mattered that that person should forgive you. Why has it mattered? Well, one category could be because that person actually has power to punish you in some way. Um, That might not happen often in your life, but I think of being at school and having done something I shouldn't and it really mattering that I get forgiven by the teacher because I don't want that detention and I don't want to have to take home that slip of paper that my dad has to sign and oh boy, there'll be trouble then. It mattered that I should be forgiven. It can matter that you're forgiven by someone for quite different reasons. It can be because you value the relationship with that person. And you don't want the relationship to be broken by what you've done. You want forgiveness so you can continue in a good relationship with that husband or wife or friend or parent or whoever it might be. There's two different categories of why forgiveness might matter to us. Now, let's apply that to God. Forgiveness by God should matter to us because he's the judge and he doesn't overlook sin. He must uphold justice and so he punishes and the Bible tells us his punishment is terrible and terrifying. Forgiveness matters. But also because of this, because he's the loving father and there is nothing better than his wise, gentle, Loving care. So important to be in right relationship with him. And so it becomes immensely important to know, are your sins forgivable or unforgivable? That's our subject this morning. Are your sins forgivable or unforgivable? Let's turn to Mark chapter 3, which we've been going through Mark's gospel, and we've got to chapter 3, verse 28 and 29. Mark chapter 3, verse 28 and 29. Last week we had an overview across most of the chapter and saw the big themes of the chapter. This week we're focusing down on one little part that raises a big question. Let's read verse 28 and 29. This is Jesus speaking. I tell you the truth. That's what Jesus said when he really wanted to emphasize something. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. This raises a question that has really worried a lot of people. What is this unforgivable sin? Have I committed it? This is mentioned here and in the other Gospels, and something similar comes up in Hebrews 6. That's why we read it. There is also in 1 John uh, mention of a sin that leads to death, and it's people disagree about whether that's the same thing as this. But there's clearly a strong link between this unforgivable sin and what's going on in Hebrews 6. So I'm going to mention both this morning. And they raise this question, what is this unforgivable sin? My aim is to try to make, to clearly answer that, to, for warning and for reassurance, but in the process to get us to be amazed again at just how forgiving God is. So, I hope you're, I hope you're in a concentrating frame of mind, because this is, I cannot claim that this is easy, light stuff this morning. 
And we need to begin with the negative. It's really important we're first clear on this. What the unforgivable sin is not. What the unforgivable sin is not. Now, I don't know how many people follow the points in the notice sheet. It says, first of all, it's not speaking against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy, Jesus refers in verse 29 to blasphemy, is speaking insultingly of someone. And God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And you could speak insultingly against the Holy Spirit. That doesn't make it the unforgivable sin. And I'm not going to say any more about that. One, because I've realised I'm trying to pack so much in this morning, I'm going to cut that one out. And move on to the second one in your notice sheet. It is not opposing God. It is not any and every time someone opposes God. In verse 29, who is Jesus speaking to? He warns some people there is an unforgivable sin. Who was he speaking to? And what have they just done? Well, the answer is in verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebub. That's that's a sort of nickname for the devil. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Jesus had been doing good by the power of the Holy Spirit. He'd been healing people. He'd been giving evidence that he was the son of God. And they insult that. They say, this comes from the devil. This comes from this nickname they've made up for the devil. They insult that. That's sinful. But they aren't just making a mistake. They aren't just speaking careless words. From chapter the beginning of chapter 2 onwards, they have been opposing Jesus. They are determinedly against Jesus. So is all opposing God the unforgivable sin? Is that what Jesus is getting at here? If you oppose God, if you set yourself against Jesus, that's the unforgivable sin. No, it's not necessarily. How can I say that? Well, has anyone ever opposed God consistently and then been forgiven? I wonder, children, if you can think of someone in the New Testament who really opposed God, who was really against Jesus and then was forgiven. There was a man called Saul. Oh, he hated Jesus. He thought Jesus was a fraud. He thought Jesus was a liar. And he set out to try to put in prison anyone who followed Jesus. He even stood by when people were throwing rocks at a follower of Jesus. And he said, that's good and that's right. Kill him because I hate Jesus. And yet he was forgiven. Why was his sin forgivable? Was it not such a serious sin? Oh, no, it was a serious sin. In fact, he later in his life, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, said, I am the worst of sinners. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. But, he said, and this is 1 Timothy 1 verse 13, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now, that's a very important statement. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, was he there saying, oh, actually, I changed my mind. I wasn't so bad. Actually, no, I ought to be let off. Really, I wasn't too bad because I didn't really know what I was doing. 
Now, no, I think even the children could work out this answer. Because you might know, in the Bible, is ignorance and unbelief seen as a good or a bad thing? Well, it's a bad thing. Unbelief particularly is seen as a sin. He's not saying, actually, no, I wasn't so bad. In in some ways, he's saying, it's even worse, I was an unbeliever. My sin was terrible, but it was not unforgivable. Because it was different from people believing Jesus is true, but still being against him. And that's what you've got in Mark chapter 3. These leaders, across chapter 2 and chapter 3, they have been repeatedly shown who Jesus is. And they know he's true. But they're still against him. Hebrews chapter 6, which uh, was read for us earlier, describes people who cannot be forgiven. And it describes them like this. I'll read you verse 4 and verse 5. They have once been enlightened. They've had the light come into their mind, God's light. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. It's all descriptions for God's truth has come to them. And they've actually seen, yes, this is true. They know who Jesus is and they still turn against him. They still say, no, we're going to be against him. Now, you might react to that and say, would there really be a person who believes Jesus is the saviour, Jesus is the son of God and turns against him? The answer is a simple yes, because people love sin. I want my sin, not Jesus. And I want to be in control and I'm not giving that up to him. That is what Jesus is referring to in chapter 3, not any and every person who opposes God. Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, opposed God, but he did it out of unbelief. Not that unbelief makes him less guilty, but it does make him forgivable. Here's another example of what the unforgivable sin is not. It is not sinning once saved and knowing what you're doing. Sinning once saved and knowing what you're doing. I've been trying to show the people in Mark 3, they knew what they were doing. They knew the truth. They'd repeatedly seen who Jesus was and they opposed him even though they knew the truth. You can see that in various other places. I wonder, children, do you know the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? And at the end of that wonderful chapter, I'm afraid it doesn't it doesn't end on the good story of Lazarus from the dead. It ends in a bad way. The temple leaders were clear Jesus has done an amazing thing. Jesus has given evidence for who he is. And they didn't they weren't in any doubt about that. But they said, but we don't want him. He's in danger of taking away our position and the way we like things. We will not have that. Let's get rid of him. They sin, although they know the truth. And this has caused some people to be worried. They've committed the unforgivable sin when they've sinned after they've turned to Jesus. They've become a Christian. They've believed Jesus. They know the truth. And then they chose to sin. Oh, I knew what I was doing. I've committed the unforgivable sin. 
But even that, bad as it is, doesn't make the sin unforgivable. Again, can you think of people in the Bible who were God's children, who knew what they were doing, and they sinned but were forgiven? There's a very big example in the Old Testament, and there's a big example in the New Testament. Think of King David, child of God, knew the truth, had wonderful experiences of God, and then what did he do? He took another man's wife. And it was no momentary slip, because after he'd done it, he then determined to get rid of the husband, and he had him killed, so he could keep the wife and try to cover up his sin. Terrible sin. In the New Testament, think of the Apostle Peter, an apostle. He'd followed the Lord Jesus. He spent three years seeing who Jesus was. He had, in fact, before anyone else, recognised, you are the Christ. You're the Saviour. You're the Son of God. And then under pressure, he said to people, no, I'm nothing to do with Jesus. No, I'm no friend of that man. With curses and swearing, he said, I'm against Jesus. And no momentary slip. He did it three times. They sinned knowing what they were doing, and yet they were forgiven. How is this forgivable? How is it different from the unforgivable sin? Because later they repented. For both David and Peter were told in the Bible how they were sorry for their sin, and how they turned from their sin, and they showed that they turned from it. Now, again, Hebrews 6 has got something similar because it describes people who can't be forgiven. And in verse 6, it says they don't repent. So you can be sure if someone is repentant, they haven't committed the unforgivable sin. If someone is sorry for their sin and wants to turn from it, they haven't committed the unforgivable sin. People don't find themselves in a position where, oh, I really want to turn from my sin and I really want to turn to Jesus and be forgiven, but I can't because I've crossed some point of no return and I can't do it. There's no one in that position. Because people who've committed the unforgivable sin certainly don't want to turn to Jesus. They are anti-Jesus. If you are concerned that you've committed the unforgivable sin, if that thought troubles you, that in itself is evidence that you haven't. People who've committed it are not concerned about it because they are anti-Jesus. Well, I needed to start on the what it isn't because actually that's the best way to try to establish and make clear what it is. So secondly, let's do this, what the unforgivable sin is. And uh, again, you're going to need to keep your concentration going this morning because there are three parts to this and all three parts must be there for it to be the unforgivable sin. First of all, being shown the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Back in Mark chapter 3, these religious people had seen evidence for who Jesus is. They'd seen him heal a paralysed man in chapter 2. They'd heard him answer their questions convincingly in chapter 2. They'd watched his power over evil spirits in chapter 3. And this was all the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, was doing these things, and they'd seen it, and they knew it. 
Now, we can't quite have that experience, can we? Because the Lord Jesus is not physically here, working miracles. But that doesn't mean the unforgivable sin is impossible now, because you could know the Bible's message. And you could have the Holy Spirit start to work in you and convince you this is true and I must take notice. And you could actually come to see Jesus is the Lord I should bow to. And then say, no, but I won't have him. I will not have him. I'm keeping in charge of my life. So that brings us to the second part of of the unforgivable sin. It's being shown the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit, but knowingly refusing him. Knowingly refusing him. Now, I'll make up an example here, and, it, and in a minute you'll see why I need to make, make clear I've made it up, in case anyone here has the name of the person I've made up. Jane is obese. Right? Uh, if there's any Janes listening, that's just coincidence, okay, because I've made this up. Jane is obese, and the doctor tells her how she must change her diet drastically, and she must change her lifestyle, otherwise she is going to have severe health problems. And she knows he's right. She knows she must do it, but she won't do it. She just refuses to change. She just doesn't want to change. But while she's like that, she's got no chance of being better. Her health has got no chance. Well, knowing Jesus is the saviour you need, but refusing to turn to him, that's, that's being like Jane. Because while you're like that, you've got no chance of forgiveness. Because forgiveness will only come through Jesus. Now, it's not, I hope you're starting to see that it's not that the size of your sin is too big for God to forgive. That's not the problem. There is no sin too big for God to forgive. It's that your heart is so hardened that you refuse to accept the saviour who can bring you forgiveness. The forgiveness God is so ready and willing to give. But that might not yet be the unforgivable sin, because there's a third part needs to come too. It's being shown the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit, knowingly refusing him and persisting in opposing Jesus. It's really important we see that's what's going on in chapter two and three. Back at the beginning of chapter two, the religious leaders were accusing Jesus of blasphemy. And we saw weeks ago that chapter two is a catalogue of events where they are against Jesus and he shows them who he is and they're still against him. And they just persistently oppose him. They are persistent in this being outspokenly anti-Jesus. When I was a teacher in Watford, uh, there was a fellow teacher called Peter and in the staff room, He just took every opportunity he could to attack God. Had there been a disaster in the news? Well, you could be sure that in the staff room he'd be speaking out to everyone about, of course there can't be a God of love. Uh, If there was just anything came up in conversation, he could remotely attach to the church or to Jesus or to Christianity. Well, he'd grab the opportunity to speak against Jesus. He was, he seemed so bitter. So keen to oppose. And then I found out that many years before, at a big evangelistic rally, 
he'd heard the gospel. And he said he was convinced by it. And he went up to the front and he said he was a Christian. And now he was so consistently opposed. And I wondered, and you can only wonder, you can't say for sure about someone. I wondered, was this an example of being guilty of the unforgivable sin? This persistent opposing of Jesus by someone who'd once seen the truth. Again, see, the problem is not the size of the sin. No one could say that sin was bigger than the Apostle Paul's sin. The problem is the heart that refuses Jesus and is dead set against him. The unforgivable sin is knowing who the Lord Jesus is because the Holy Spirit's made that clear to you. But refusing to have him and persistently opposing him. Now, that raises an issue. And here's the third section this morning. That raises an issue. What the warning is here for. Why did Jesus give this warning? Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about what's the point of the warning. I'll try to illustrate it like this. You're at a climbing wall with a friend and she's got to about 30 feet up. I don't know what's. Well, let's say she's got to the height of that brick beam up there. And she clips into a fastening that you know isn't secure enough. You know, it's a dodgy fastening. And she climbs up a bit further, then she slips and falls. And as she falls, you warn her, don't clip into that fastening, it's no good. Well, what's the point of that warning? It's too late, isn't it, by then? It's a pointless warning. And you might think, isn't Jesus' warning pointless? Who is Jesus speaking to in verse 29? Well, it's the very same people who were opposing him. It's the religious leaders. He's actually speaking to them. Well, if their sin is unforgivable, isn't it a pointless warning? There's nothing they can do. They've just got to wait for God's judgment. No way back. Well, it isn't too late. It isn't a pointless warning, even for them, because he doesn't say they've committed it yet. He doesn't say they've committed it yet. There's still a chance for them to humble themselves and turn to Jesus. But they're moving in a dangerous direction. Across chapter 2 and chapter 3, they've got harder and harder. Their heart is harder. And one day, they could be too hard to change. But he doesn't say they are there yet. Now, that is a very very serious warning for you if you know Jesus is true but you're turning your back on him. If you know Jesus is true but you're turning your back on him that doesn't mean you've committed the unforgivable sin. But it does mean watch out. Consider the direction you're going in. Consider where this could lead you and turn to Jesus now. There's something very similar in Hebrews 6. Each time this morning, I'm trying to show a parallel with Hebrews 6. It's very similar. Hebrews 6 is warning about people who who won't repent and can't be forgiven. And you might say, what's the warning of people? What's the point of warning people who won't repent? (laughs) You're going to get nowhere. Why warn people who won't repent? Well, the writer of Hebrews says to the readers of Hebrews, I don't think that's you. In fact, I can see signs that look like salvation in you, 
But watch out, because you're being careless about following Jesus. He was writing to people who were careless about following Jesus. And he says, watch out, because being careless about following Jesus is dangerous. And this is where it can lead you. It can lead you to a terrible place. It can lead you to a point of no return. I don't think you're there, and I don't think you're going to get there, but you need the warning. Because there's the danger, you're heading that way. On a mountain in the Alps, I saw a very strange thing. It was a ramp leading out over a vertical drop that was massive, hundreds and hundreds of feet. This vertical metal ramp just leading out into open air, into nothingness, down steep. What was that for? Well, I think it was for paragliders. You know those crazy people who run off mountains and jump and then the parachute opens and off they go. And uh, it had no barrier around it. It was a sort of thing looking at and thinking of stepping on it made your legs feel like jelly. Yeah, imagine coming down the mountain and coming down the mountain and then carrying a walking on that ramp. And I thought it was pretty steep. You'd soon get to a point where you couldn't stop yourself going forward and then you'd be over the edge. And I can tell you it was a very long way down. Well... If you're drifting, if you're being careless about Jesus, if you still believe in Jesus, but he's well below top of your priorities, be careful because you're like someone coming down the mountain and tiptoeing around the edge of that ramp. Because it easily becomes unbelief stepping onto the ramp. And unbelief easily hardens into cynicism about Jesus. Now you're speeding up down the ramp. And cynicism about Jesus easily becomes opposing Jesus. Now you're on the bottom edge of the ramp. And if you persist in that, well, now you're over the edge. And there is a point of no return. So step back from the ramp. Get following Jesus closely again. Stir up your love for him again. Jesus is giving a real warning here. He does have a point to it. Now, I haven't given much time for the best bit. This is the bit I've been most wanting to get to. But we have, it is very important we worked at those things about the unforgivable sin. Because we might need the warning and we might need the reassurance. And we do need to be clear. But here's the, here's the bit that I've been most looking forward to. What the most remarkable thing is that Jesus says here. Back in Mark chapter 3, verse 28 and 29. What the most remarkable thing is, Jesus says here. Which gets your attention more? Verse 28 or verse 29? Verse 28 I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. Or verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Which are you more surprised by? Verse 28, all sins will be forgiven. Or verse 29, there is one sin that won't be forgiven. About which do you say, how can God do that? Verse 28, forgiving, or verse 29, not forgiving. Which one stands out to you more? Which one is more surprising, shocking, amazing? Christian brothers and sisters, ask yourself those questions. 
to see, are you still amazed that God forgives sins? Are you amazed that God would forgive your sins? To try to help us to think about this and to to regain amazement at it, here's a little illustration. On the 11th of July, three people kicked a football and got a load of abuse for it. Now, do you know what I'm talking about? How could three people get a load of abuse just for kicking a football on the 11th of July? What is it? It was the Euros final. And three people were Saka, Sancho and Rashford missing their penalties. And they got a load of racist abuse in social media for it. And Gareth Southgate said... Racist abuse of England players is unforgivable. Do you see the connection? Yeah? Racist abuse of England players is unforgivable. Now, is he right? Is it unforgivable? Now, you might say, of course it is. How dare you ask the question, what are you, some racist? Because we tend to think that unforgivable means it's really serious And it must not be overlooked and it must be dealt with. And I suspect that that's what Gareth Southgate meant. I suspect he wasn't making a theological comment on unforgivable sins. I think he probably just meant those three things. But we tend to think forgivable, for a sin to be forgivable means it's not that serious and it can be overlooked and it doesn't need to be dealt with. We can just move on. Now, take those thoughts and apply them to your sins. Does God say they are forgivable because they are not very serious and they can be overlooked and they don't need to be dealt with? We can just move on. No. He says they are very serious and they cannot be overlooked and they must be dealt with. And yet they're forgivable. How? How? By the one who said these words, the son of God himself, taking your sins on himself. God didn't overlook them. He sent his son into this world to deal with them. And they are so serious that the son of God himself died a terrible death to pay for them. And as a result, verse 28, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. It doesn't mean everyone is forgiven. The Bible is clear. You must turn from your sins to Jesus and put your trust in him. It's only if you do that that you will be forgiven. Have you done that? Have you turned from your way to his way? Have you asked him for forgiveness? Will you do that now? And then... Well, verse 28, thank God, doesn't say your sin might be forgiven. It doesn't say may be forgiven. It doesn't say most sins can be forgiven. It says all sin will be forgiven. That is the shocking statement. It's not verse 29 that should shock us, it's verse 28. That is the statement of Jesus that should get our interest, that should attract us to him, that should reassure us, and that should make us Full of amazed praise.